0: Welcome to 1001 True Stories. My name is Brian Tremblay, your host. Thank you for joining me. This show is where you'll get to meet some of the nicest people on earth. Most of them just regular, ordinary, everyday folks who experience something worth talking about. It could be anything from a ghost story, to a celebrity encounter, to a close call, to a family camping adventure that went wrong. The theory here is that everyone has a story to tell and we'd like to hear it. Today's guest on 1001 True Stories is Brian Davies, and he'll be telling us about a ghostly encounter he had when he was but a teenager at a boarding school. And now, on to our story. Hello folks, and welcome to the program. And our guest today is Mr. Brian Davies. I'm going to let him introduce himself to you all, and he's also uh, then going to tell us an incredible story. Brian Davies, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. I am Brian Davies. I am 65 years old. I live just outside of Sault Ste. Marie, south of a place called Grocap on Lake Superior with my wife, Marianne. Uh, We have two grown children. I have two gorgeous grandchildren. They live in southern Ontario. And locally, I'm very proud to lead uh, a publishing company called Tagona Press, and I have been involved in writing and creative projects for a long, long time. And uh, in my earlier days, my formative years, as one might say, Brian, (laughs) um, I attended a uh, a private boys' school, as it was then, um, in Oakville, Ontario, Appleby College, and uh, my story relates to a, an, an incident in which I was involved in April of 1977, which has never, ever left my mind.
0: All right. Are we hearing an exclusive here kind of thing? You don't tell this story very often, do you? I,
1: I don't tell the story very often. I, I'm not shy about telling it, but it, it's it's something that really, as I reflect on One's life as I just turned sixty-five at New Year's Eve. Oh, I was a New Year's Eve baby in those days. uh, It it is something that I started reflecting upon, and I realized that in my life I never really have had what one would call an encounter Hmm. with a supernatural event. Okay, as you know through our friendship, um, I'm an active. Uh, outdoor person I love snowshoeing I love biking running um, kayaking especially kayaking on beautiful Lake Superior and I will admit a few times to have been felt the power of nature that sort of wonderful supernatural feeling that one gets in the outdoors but I've never ever had an encounter with what I thought was a ghost Mm -hmm. except once and it was April the 16th of 1997 at Appleby College.
0: Excellent. All right. And, uh, well, I'm just going to let you go ahead and work us into the story and uh, tell this all how it came about. Sure. And, and actually, and I'll interrupt, sorry, but we even know who the ghost was of, don't we? We, indeed we do. Oh, excellent. See, that's different. This isn't just some disembodied spirit.
1: And it is and someone who was never a part of my life. Interesting. Except my Appleby life.
0: Correct. Okay. The so, floor is yours.
1: So just a brief background, I suppose, Brian, about Appleby College. Um, it it's, uh, is today a extremely prestigious, elite-level North American um, co-educational private school. Seven or 800 students, I believe. Oakville, Ontario, on the shore of Lake Ontario. Um, I say elite not just because of the tuition fees, which today, Brian, if you board, exceed $90,000 per year. Ouch. <laughs> But the school, all accounts, is a remarkable educational opportunity for those who get to attend. And when I won a full scholarship to Appleby in in 1973 to enter grade 10 then, I had the same benefits. It was an all-boys school, grade 4 to 13 in those days. 430 boys uh, total, 290 in the senior school, the high school, grade 9 to 13. And I was a boarder. And I boarded in a residence called Colley House. And Colley House was the original school building from when the school was founded in 1911. In those days, just one building, it was 60 boys, as I understand it. But our residence called Colley House, one of three. And um, uh, Call, uh, Appleby was a wonderful place for me, uh, a place where Academics were important, sports were compulsory, and the extracurricular opportunities were remarkable. We had amazing teachers and masters, as they were known in those days. And in the mid-1970s, Appleby, like Upper Canada College, like Ridley College, like St. Andrews College, uh, were were those old line sort of quote-unquote English boys' schools, kind of transitioning into the modern era mm-hmm. but uh, for example Appleby's colors were the double blue dark blue navy blue of Oxford and Cambridge from England the original uh, founding headmaster a man named guest um, came from that tradition and so even in the mid-70s it was a it was a place where there were rules it was all boys uh, but it was for me a wonderful place And in the fall of 1976, uh, I was appointed the the head prefect of the school. Sometimes I was the head boy. (laughs) And I was the head prefect of Colley House, my residence and uh, as part of that uh, esteemed position, I, I, I laughed, but I was I was very proud to be sure, and, and of to be that guy. Yeah, um, especially in a class of our uh, forty graduates in 1977, some remarkably talented individuals in that in that class. Great, great people uh, then and now. But uh, part of my uh, part of my Collie House and and head boy, uh, quote unquote, status. I had a room on the third floor, and it was a little bigger room than most the other guys had, still pretty Spartan, wash basin and whatnot, but, a, but a, a bigger room that overlooked the main quad of the school, and on the third floor, and it was where I lived in grade 13.
0: Now, what do people want to know, what is a prefect, what does the prefect do?
1: In those days, I can't speak to it now, but in those days, the prefects were the group of, of boys out of our class of, of 40. Uh, I think we had about five prefects per residence, so 15 or 16 of us were prefects, and each residence had a head prefect, and I was the, the head of the, the school. And we were responsible for minor disciplinary matters around the school. Um we could enforce the rules. For example, hey, you got to go to bed by 10:30, you have to get up at this particular time, you got to go to chapel, like the various school rules. The prefects were expected to uh, to enforce them. And there was a wonderful system called defaulters. If you <laughs> breached a, a rule, you had to get up at well, I think it was six forty-five in the morning and do some sort of chores around the school. Okay, uh, in all seasons. But but the prefects, looking back on it now, Brian, 40, 46, 47 years later, we were really expected to kind of lead lead the school community, and um, it wasn't too surprising that most of the prefects were the captains of the sports teams pretty good students, some, some exceptional students, the people that were respected by their fellows and expected to set the tone in the school. And um, I was looking back at our yearbook from 1976-77, and really I think our class certainly achieved that. We were a, a good, cohesive, friendly group of people, even though I haven't seen some of them since the day I left Appleby. If one of them showed up at my house on Sunnyside Beach Road in Sault Ste. Marie, they'd be welcomed with open arms, how long are you staying? It, right. it was, we had a great relationship.
0: Excellent. That's a, that's very good. And what age did you start at the school? I started in grade 10, so I was
1: 14. I turned 15 um, in my grade 10 year, and I was 18 at the time I uh, I graduated.
0: Okay. And at the time of this uh, encounter, how old were you? 18. You were 18. Okay. Continue on, sir. It was on April
1: the, uh, the 16th of 1977. It was Saturday. Saturday night. And um, Saturday night at Appleby in those days, if you were in grade 13 and your marks were good and all that sort of stuff, um, if you lived locally, you could you could go home for the night and mm-hmm. come back. As long as you made chapel the next morning at about 9 o'clock, That was okay. And a lot of the fellows that lived close would, would do that in our year. I lived in Whitby. So um, most of the time on a weekend like that, I just stayed there. Uh, Collie House in those days been renovated now. We had a big snooker table in the common room, played pool, watched television, did the things that guys who didn't have a girlfriend in town (laughs) did when they were 18 years old. And and I just remember that particular day playing pool uh, with a couple of guys I knew, uh, going to bed about 11. The weekend before it, I'd I'd been home in Whitby because it was Easter. And it was a Saturday night, and it was spring, and it was cool, and there were no leaves in the trees, and I went to bed about 11 o'clock, and I was going to get up at about 6.30 like I normally did, and get ready to go to chapel in the morning, and probably play a little pickup basketball in the afternoon, because it was uh, pretty quiet in those days, and mm-hmm. you always had sports on offer at Appleby. It was just great that way. Cool. But this night, I went to bed, nothing, I had not been drinking, Uh, uh, (laughs) I never have uh, consumed cannabis, Uh, nothing like that. I went to bed about 11, and I woke up, um, not I'd say with a start, but I woke up, I was looking at the wall of my room, which faced the window which looked out onto this quad that I've mentioned, and there were some old trees and um, in April, just a lattice work. there were no leaves or anything, and uh, a street light or a parking lot light sort of shone those trees into against the wall
0: that I'm looking at in my room where my bed is. We'll return to our conversation with Brian Davies right after these sponsor messages.
2: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant.
0: And now, back to Witness with Brian Trombley. You know, I want to sleep with that sight every night. Right? It's just <laughs> something you're used to. I wake up at this
1: particular point and I see a face. And I recognize the face because the face was on the number of old trophies, old photographs and things in the various collections at Appleby at that time. And it was the face of a guy named Aubrey Vere Arnold Turquand. Turk, as he was known. Um, and he, in 1914, was the head prefect, the head boy of Appleby College. And he would have lived in the same room where I was living right then. It was his face. It was, a, it was like a silhouette, Brian, cast against the trees. In black and white, it was his face. I looked. I looked. I looked away. I said, okay, I'm going to wake up in a minute here. I looked away. Face didn't move. Expressionless. No smile, no nothing. There's two things that I remembered as clear as day now as my emotions then. I wasn't in any way afraid. Interesting. I, I never, ever, ever had what one would call a supernatural experience. I attend church, <laughs> I, I guess, uh, and a lot of people would say, well, that's a, <laughs> you must believe in the supernatural somehow. <laughs> right. But I would never, ever had kind of a ghostly encounter or spirit or anything like this. I'm looking at his face. I didn't have my watch handy, uh, days pre-cell phone. Uh, but it, this went on for a number of minutes, and I just looked at this face, expressionless, black and white sort of um, tableau, almost like a cameo sort of mm. shot. Of this guy, and it was plainly Aubrey Turquand because his photograph famously dis- displayed. And why was it famous, Brian? Mm. He had been in the he had been in the first class that went into Appleby College in 1911. Wow! And by 1914, he was the captain of the rugby football team, as it was then. The captain of hockey, the captain of cricket. He had won the best athlete of the year award twice in the school. He was a terrific scholar, originally from Toronto, had gone to Upper Canada College Preparatory School. He was the head prefect named in September of 1914, and apparently a great scholar, and to all accounts, just a quote unquote great guy, a leader of young men. And at 18, in November or December of 1914, he left school to enlist in the uh, the Canadian Army. And he joined what became the Canadian Expeditionary Force that fought in France. He was with the 3rd Battalion of um, the Canadian Infantry. He was promoted very quickly to sergeant, not too surprising given that this guy was a leader. He deliberately um, reduced his rank to Lance Corporal so that he could go to France. Wow. And he, um, he fought uh, with, the, uh, with the 3rd Battalion, uh, was wounded. And then was killed in June of uh, 1916 at Ypres. Uh, And his body was never found. And he's memorialized now on the famous arch at Ypres. Um, I think it's called the Menin Arch uh, of the guys who were never found. Hmm. I'm not sure how long Aubrey (laughs) Turk and I looked at each other. I did get the sense he was staring at me. I stared at him. I don't remember saying a word. I do remember, very, very plainly, going up to my wall and putting my hands on this face. Does that result in any sensations? No, except that the light that was coming through the window didn't move it. Like, I cast a shadow on this face. Wow. That I will never forget. Okay. I was not afraid. It was very strange. I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel calm. I didn't feel contentment. I just, I was just looking at this man, and he was looking. His eyes are looking right at me. I get the sense today, Brian. I've thought about this so many times. I haven't talked about it a lot. I have told my wife about it. Forty years, you talk about all kinds of stuff. I think I probably told my kids um, my Applebee experiences, but it's not something I've ever written about. Uh-huh. As you know, I've, I've written... All kinds books, of articles, yes. all sorts of stuff. I've never written about it, never talked about it in public as we are now. But I the weirdest thing looking back is that a, this must have gone on for at least half an hour. really at least. I had not been drinking. I hadn't been doing nothing like that. Uh, I had wasn't taking any medications. I, just a just a regular night for Brian at Appleby as he was cruising in the last two months of his Appleby career, getting ready to go to university. I it was just com- so completely out of my experience that a I could never forget it. But the thing I remember is touching the wall, feeling the wall. But obviously I was touching this. Image because I was casting a shadow over it. Did it appear to be animated at all? It was. That's as funny you say, it didn't. It looked like the photographs that I had seen of this guy through the Appleby archives and various memorabilia. But it it wasn't. It didn't look like a photograph. It looked like something real, if you get my meaning. Yes. It wasn't just. A projection of a picture. It was something there. And then I sat down on my bed, which was about eight feet away, nine, and kept looking at it. And then all of a sudden, it was gone. Disappeared. In a snap, I went back to the wall. Again, said to myself, okay, when am I waking up here? This is the (laughs) weirdest thing ever. And I eventually went back to sleep. Woke up the next morning, reflected on this hard. I didn't tell anybody. Uh, They might have thought, did just sneak out to one of the bars downtown, Brian? (laughs) 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 There's a place called the Riverside the boys used to frequent. (laughs) I see. Okay. But I, uh, no. uh, and, and, And I realized then that I had been involved in something very, very strange. I didn't do any research into this, Brian, at that time. Okay. I knew who Turquan was. I mean, he was famous. He was, he was the first Appleby person killed in action of World War I. So he, he had that status. And, gee, I remember when I was at Appleby between 1973 and 77, occasionally an old boy, as the alumni were known at that time, would show up who was in that first graduating class of 1914-15. Wow. And they would talk about Turquan as a demigod. He was mm. a hero. A very, very like amazing athlete, great guy, great scholar, all that sort of stuff. And so I, I did, I had in the past spoken with people who actually had gone to school with him 60 years before. But I didn't do any research into this until a couple months just before I graduated, which was June the 11th of 1977. I just started looking through some material that we had available then at the Appleby Library. And Oh, okay. He was killed in June of 2016, so there wasn't, there was no association between his April date, date, right? Yeah, yeah. It was about ten years ago, just randomly. I was looking old yearbook. Cherquand, his 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 name is on an award that a friend of mine had won back in those days. And I look up a service record that you can access online hmm. through, through, of course, right? Yep. Yeah, usually the Library of Canada has it. On April the 16th, or 1916, Aubrey Chircon was wounded. Oh. At, at EAP. Okay. He was wounded. He was then killed later. And apparently he was so keen to get back in action that he probably shouldn't have, but he was that kind of a guy. Wow. And isn't it interesting, says Brian to himself all those years later. The day that he was wounded yeah. is the day that his face appeared in the room where he lived, where I lived, 60-plus years later, for half an hour, and then disappeared. I've never forgotten it. Okay. It is absolutely something that I would never forget. And it, as I said to you earlier, Brian, is not like I'm one of those paranormal people. I don't in any way discount those people, right. who they are, yeah. and what they think. Um, I, It's great. People have different worldviews. I'm not the person who has always sort of gone looking for that kind of encounter. Mm -hmm. It's the only one I've ever had. And as you can guess from the tone of my voice, it's something that has absolutely stuck with me forever. Right.
0: And when you were that young, after you had that encounter, did you, were you left feeling a certain way? Uh, Did, did, did it, it Okay, you weren't scared in a traditional way, but did it bother you? Like, I might have had sleepless nights myself. How about yourself? Oh,
1: I, I thought about it constantly. Um, and I was wondering, okay, when is uh, when is Aubrey, when is Turk coming back to visit? <laughs> um, he he. Mu- I, I thought then, because I hadn't made the association between the April 16, 1916 and April 16, 1977 dates at all. Right. Um, you know, what's the significance of this? Yes. He must have... What was the purpose? What was the meaning? What was all this about? Why now? Why then? Why not earlier? I, I was—I lived in that room for nine months. Like, why? Why then? And and it was—it was just a very, it was one of those things that eventually, I guess, over time, it sort of it it, the immediacy of E-CM, it kind of melted away, but I never forgot it. And it's every now and then, between that day and sitting and talking to your good self today. It's one of those things that just pops into your consciousness.
0: And, we, and, and you wonder, it
1: okay, why did he reach out to me?
0: Because yeah. I know
1: he did. Uh-huh. For what purpose?
0: Yeah.
1: There was no, like, not a word, not a communication, nothing. It was that, but he was looking, his eyes were looking right at me. Like, no mistake. Not again, in a photograph, a photographer, as you know, as a photographer, you have to be pretty skilled to make sure. That the viewer of a, photogra- of a photograph feels that immediacy of the eyes. Correct. I, yes. I felt that immediacy. He yeah. was looking right at me. I'm not... I didn't get the sense he was looking for me to do anything or that there was any request or there was any... That there was any. Hey, go out and talk to this guy or go and get something. But you might agree with me that if something lasts more than half an hour... Yes. And I know it did. Yeah. In that person or spirit is uh-huh. looking right at you and you're eight feet apart. Yeah. Wow.
0: I can't forget it. So what do you say to the skeptics? What do you say? Oh, you were just probably, it's a dream, Brian, you were dreaming. You didn't even realize it or, or were you even skeptical yourself saying, eh, they must've been something. Um,
1: I I I I did all those checks as I was looking at this
0: at this image.
1: I there there is no uh, you know a person knows themselves I guess better than anything. True. I uh, and the fact that I was never that kid growing up who who felt that they you know were in touch with the spirit world and I haven't been afterwards. Aside from I said my half joking you know affiliation with the Anglican <laughs> Church here in the Sioux. Yes. Uh, I. I've never been that guy, and that's why I've always had sort of the, the, I guess, the raw confidence and the gut confidence that this absolutely happened the way I've depicted it. And I would love to know why, other than why Aubrey reached out as he did for that period of time
0: and, and never made a reappearance. And that's yet the mystery to still be solved, I guess. Maybe one day... And and you've never had an encounter again of not necessarily with nope. with uh, never Aubrey or any other kind never never again never and anymore. there
1: I guess you know you a person says well there's no way it was a dream well okay somebody well maybe it was I don't know uh, no. Not a chance. Not a chance. Right. Um, and I'm sure anybody who knew me in that period Appleby would agree that I was not the fanciful type. Right. Uh, you know, loved, loved my sports, loved de- the debating society, sang in the choir, active in school, all this kind of stuff. Just a, a regular guy at that school. Um, I was not the uh, paranormal expert, that's for sure.
0: That's interesting.
1: Never, ever forgotten it.
0: So, and just to make sure that our listeners know that this isn't just some guy off the street. Uh, tell the folks what you do for what you did for a living, and maybe kind of continue to still do for a living, uh, and just to see who what kind of person we're talking about. Ah, uh, well, yeah. I mean, after
1: I left Appleby, I, I went to the University of Toronto. I played basketball, University of Toronto, and then was accepted into uh, University of Western's Law School, and uh, graduated from there in 1982. I articled uh, for a wonderful firm in Oshawa, headed by a guy named Terry Kelly. Uh, gra- called to the bar in 1984 and um, worked primarily as a a criminal defense and then as a a crown prosecutor until uh, uh, 2001. Um, Prosecuted a number of serious crimes, homicides and rapes and um, armed robberies and whatnot, where, uh, as you might agree, Brian, fact is really important. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so therefore I'm not the kind of person who is, I hope, prone to just... Get into inventions yes. just for the sake of inventing things. It was never my professional career, and now uh, uh, leading a publishing company, I had the honor of leading a publishing company that's won awards for nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've won three North American awards for nonfiction yeah, books wow. in the last three years. No kidding. I, I, I'm really a person who loves truth loves the power uh, uh true stories to me are way better than ones that are made up it's always been my way
0: yeah.
1: and, and uh yeah so i i suppose and i've never really thought about what you just, mo- just mentioned i suppose in a way that does lend in my own mind a little bit more credence to to this particular story
0: i think so because you are a man who knows facts you know evidence intimately involved you, you know <laughs> yeah. you know what's acceptable and what you what isn't acceptable yeah. Um, and I guess, let me put it to you this way. If, uh, if that kind of evidence was given as a defense or something, let's see, because you were on the prosecutu- prosecutorial side, <laughs> pardon my language... How would you have taken that story if you had heard it
1: there for the first time? Well, you know, the great thing about our, our legal system, Brian, is that, uh, you know, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is the criminal standard, of course. But, you know, a jury, of tw- a jury of 12 people, reasonable people, honest people, objective people, are allowed to make up their minds on the basis of the evidence that they hear. And if a jury accepts evidence, they accept it. If they reject it, they reject it. If they have a doubt as to whether it's accurate or not, well, in a criminal trial, you've got to acquit. But in the civil court, the standard is a little different.
0: It's, it's a preponderance a, of the evidence, right? isn't it? 51
1: to 49, more likely than not. Um, are you persuaded by the evidence? All that sort of stuff. And I I would have no trouble standing in front of a group of my peers and making this case and saying, that's what happened. Could I ever prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? Nah, that was a long time ago, and I didn't take pictures. <laughs> there were no cell phones.
0: Right. But
1: I really do believe that if somebody objective, looked at what Appleby College was, the history, this particular person, Turquand, who was a hero, Um, the fact that I have no connection with his family or any sort of uh, involvement with, with his life ever until this particular time, I think that somebody would say, gee, Brian, I'm persuaded that something really, really unusual happened to you that night. Why? For what purpose? What objective? I really, I'm like you, I got no idea. But I am persuaded that you met Aubrey Turquan that night, coincidentally, and you didn't know it at the time, the day that he was wounded in battle,
0: and then killed two months later. There you go. As they say, folks, the preponderance of the evidence, Uh, and I'm a skeptic until I find new evidence that makes me change my outlook and change my mind. Uh, I would have to say I can't say definitively, as a skeptic, I could not say definitively that that doesn't sound correct. So I don't know if I'd have handled it with such a plum that you did. (laughs) I might have have ran out of the room, I'm not sure. One of the
1: very, very strangest things that has ever happened to me. That's incredible. In a life of 65 years, that's had
0: its own bumps and
1: bruises. (laughs) I love it.
0: Brian Davies, thank you very much for coming on the program and telling this wonderful story. Brian, it was an honor, and I'm just thrilled for the
1: first time to actually tell it in its entirety.
0: There you have it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Witness with Brian Trombley. And if you think you have a story to share or know someone who does, email me at brian at That email is linked in the show notes. We really enjoy reviews as well as your sharing our show with others. There will be new stories from more interesting people every Saturday at noon Eastern Time. Until next Saturday, this is 1001 True Stories with Brian Trombley. Everyone's got a story. What's yours?
2: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done.